Good morning, and happy Lord's Day to you all. Uh, I'm scanning right now, looking, looking, looking. I don't see him, and he's hard to miss. Mike Hunter, are you here? I don't see him. Like I said, he's hard to miss, so I'm going to guess he's at home alone. Uh, I did just want to call attention to Mike. Uh, this past year, we've seen a lot of people moving away. We've seen uh, Sam and Kate. We have seen uh, Bill and Rosario Lyons uh, that have moved away, and uh, somebody else is trying to move away, too. I'm, I'm still praying against her, and uh, Miss Amy trying to sneak out of here, um, Amy Hanlon, but we will treasure our time with her, but Mike and Eileen uh, are set to leave to the Philippines any time now. As soon as uh, I understand as the, their passport gets cleared, he, he's going to try and hele and jet out of here, uh, literally jet out of here. And so uh, Mike and Eileen, if you're watching online, I uh, just want you to know we love you. We're going to miss you. I encourage you, KBC family, reach out to them. Let them know how much you love them. They have been a tremendous blessing to me uh, personally, pastorally, and to our church. And uh, I just love you. I thought about uh, maybe like trying to give an impersonation of Mike, but I'll, I'll save that, brother, for another time. Uh, but we love you all, and, and we will miss you. So please reach out to them and let them know how much you love them before they leave. All right. He's watching. Okay, there he is. He's watching. Okay, he's, I don't know if he's commenting or whatever, but brother, we love you, and uh, uh, we miss you. So all right, we are back in Daniel. Many have asked over the months, when are we going back to Daniel? And that time starts today. We are in Daniel chapter 7. This is part 1. This will be a multi-part sermon. Uh, the title of the sermon is Fantastic Beasts. Fantastic Beasts. And as you heard from the text, you can see why. We have a number of beasts in this text. And what we're going to see with the book of Daniel is that things are not always what they appear to be. Things are not always what they appear to be, whether it be the famous novel, uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, where Dorian looks like one thing, but there is a picture showing his true character, his true nature. Or, we'll take it down a little bit, put the cookies on the bottom shelf, uh, if it's Scooby-Doo. You remember old Scooby-Doo and, the, uh, and these men running around dressed as ghosts and ghouls and monstrous things, and yet they find at the end of the episode, ah, it's just a man. Things are not always what they seem. And so in the book of Daniel, we're all going to jump in the mystery mobile, and we're going to see a peek at the true nature of our world and what is happening our last sermon left us off in April. If you remember, the last sermon on Daniel was from Daniel chapter 6 on Easter Sunday. Uh, none of you were here for it. You were all at home watching online, uh, and I preached it from a graveyard. Uh, but that was the last sermon. That was nine months ago. Nine months ago. Now, I know you guys all remember all of my sermons every week, don't you? Right? You remember all of them, right? Just crystal clear, so I don't need to do any review, okay? No, well, we'll, we'll take most of this sermon, uh, full disclosure, will be reviewed to catch us up to speed. Uh, and so we left off with the Sunday school stories, all right? With the, the famous Sunday school stories. And now we're going to press in where most churches leave off 
Uh, just like with Revelation, most churches will preach through Daniel 6 and then leave off and go into other things. Most churches will preach through Revelation 3 and then leave off. Why? Because after chapter 6 of Daniel, after Revelation 3, it gets all kind of wonky and crazy and hard to interpret. But we, by the grace of God and His Spirit, we are going to press in and finish the whole thing and glean what we can. So uh, this is a first sermon. We're going to, uh, again, we're going to recap, review, refresh, get us up to speed, and then jam ahead for sure next week. Uh, so let's pray and get to it. Father in heaven, this is your holy word, and may we receive it holy, and it alone Father, I ask for your help to speak clearly and concisely. May I not go beyond the written word, either in this sermon or the sermons to come. And may we see the treasure that you have for us in Daniel's message and his prophecy. And may we live by it. May it shape our view of reality. May it shape our view of ourselves. May it shape our view of you in your superiority. And we pray, Father, that as this word is proclaimed, that the good news of Jesus Christ would resound here, that sinners would turn today and cling to Jesus. And may those who are faithful press on in obedience. We pray for our sister churches. We ask that you would be with Maui Philippine Baptist Church, Pastor Bong and, and his family, his church family as well, and their leaders, would you bless that church, build them up, make them everything you long for them to be. Thank you for those partners in Christ. We also want to say a special prayer over Mike and Eileen Kleinsasser. We thank you for them and their family and their love. Would you guide them? Would you guard them from all harm? And would they be a blessing wherever they land in the Philippines, to your glory and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. I have three points. Three points. They are not alliterated today, but they are in a phrase that you will find easy to remember. Three points. Ready? Back to the future. There it is. Back. <laughs> Skyler. That's awesome. Uh, back to as in the number, the future. So number one, back. This is our overview. We're going to go back into history, the history of Israel specifically. If you don't know what's happening in Israel, you can't understand Daniel and where we're at. So we're going to go back to the history of Israel. We're also going to go back and recap Daniel itself, chapters 1 through 6. I'm going to do it as fast as I can. We finished the book of uh, Exodus, and we found with the nation of Israel, they were born, they were redeemed, they were brought out of Egypt. Exodus ends with God dwelling for the first time since the Garden of Eden amidst his people in the tabernacle. And where are they? Are they in the promised land yet? No, they're in the wilderness, and they remain in the wilderness for 40 years. Then Joshua leads them after the death of Moses to the conquest of Canaan, and they begin to take possession of the promised land, but they already start to disobey God. 
If you remember the covenant with Israel at Sinai, repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, it comes with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God said, I will love you unconditionally, but do not break this covenant or you will pay a price to include being expelled out of the land like the people before you. It came with a warning. It came with a warning. And in the book of Joshua, they already start to break God's command. They leave some of the peoples of the land. They are increasingly lured into idolatry, into covenant unfaithfulness. The book of Judges, the refrain, everybody did, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Eventually, the nation of Israel starts to look at the surrounding nations and they ask for a human king. Not unlike we would do do today, perhaps, if we see, oh, look, Egypt just had a big parade and they had a king at the head of their parade. Who's at the head of our parade? Oh, that we could have a king in our parade. Oh, that we could. And they are warned against this by God through the prophet Samuel. They are they're told what will happen and the pain and suffering that will ensue, and they go through with it anyways. You can read all about that in the book of Samuel. Oh, beloved, one of the worst forms of judgment is when God gives us what we want, isn't it? When we ask him long enough, he says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I want it, I want it, I want it. <sighs> Scary when he gives us what we want. And that's what he did with Israel. He gave them what they wanted after warning them against it. And what follows is that very sad history of the kingdom of Israel. First you have Saul, then you have David, then you have Solomon. By the end of Solomon's reign, his heart is turned away to idols. He is not following the Lord. And what ensues is a divided kingdom. The kingdom goes divided after that. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern, sorry, yes, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Ten tribes are allegiant or have their allegiance in Israel, the other two with Judah. And they're divided. The northern kingdom of Israel was pretty much wicked to the core. All 19 of their kings would lead them to worship idols, and they were sent into exile via Assyria. All of them. Just think about that. We want a king. We want a king. It'll be great. All of them led to idolatry and eventually exile. Sin never delivers what it promises. The southern kingdom of Judah Judah was only a little bit better. They had five good kings out of 20 total, but they were eventually exiled to Babylon in the year 586 B.C. And this brings us, now we are caught up to speed historically, to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Still with me? Daniel 1, 1. I told you I'd try to be concise. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, I read here. In the third year 
of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now remember, we read this on a page, but fast, like, try to picture this in your brain. This is national catastrophic crisis. This is trauma at the national level. They saw and are seeing their sons, their daughters, their husbands exiled by a foreign power. They are going to see their temple, their most sacred site where they get their identity totally decimated and dismantled by Babylon. It is vicious and ugly. Let me ask you this, how have you felt watching the news lately? Is there not a sense of heaviness in your heart as you see various buildings, capital buildings, getting uh, scaled walls and, and all kind of disarray and chaos? Is there not a heaviness when you see occupations in cities across our nation and total disruption? Is there not a heaviness? Now take that and multiply it by total government collapse. And you'll get a little inkling of how the Israelites felt as they saw their nation just totally getting decimated. And the worst part, remember, was the burning question that they had in their hearts. First, did Yahweh leave us? Did he finally get fed up with us and abandon us for our sin? The burning question. Or, if he didn't leave us, are the gods of Babylon superior are they superior to Yahweh because he lost? That's what they're doing. They're carrying off the vessels into Babylon to show superiority and domination. And if you're an Israelite, you're asking yourself one of these two questions. Did God leave or is he weak? And both are going to lead you, depending on how you answer that, to a trajectory of compromise or faithfulness? And the answer of Daniel, did God leave us? Absolutely not. Well, is he weak? Absolutely not. He is sovereign and in control. And that's what Daniel is pressing on the people as they are being exiled. We're going to see this message unmistakably. It ultimately flows from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon himself in Daniel chapter 4. This message that Yahweh reigns and is superior. The God of Daniel is different and to be revered. And that's ultimately the, the history. That's what the message is. God is not defeated. The God of Israel, though it looks like he lost, is in absolute control. And we get that, you remember that clue in verse 2? Do you remember it? Here it is, verse 2, chapter 1. He gives us a clue. Here's the clue that we know that God is in absolute control. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who gave? the Lord. Did he lose? Were they stripped out of his hand? Not at all. He gave them. 
And that message is going to come into focus into the second part of the book in increasing measure in Daniel 7. Let's pause and do two points of application. What do we see here from this brief overview? I don't want this to be like a college lecture where we're like, oh, cool, I got a better understanding of the history of the nation of Israel now. No. What do we draw from this? Because the scriptures say that this, the history and the actions, were written down for your instruction and for mine. So what does God want us to see? Here's two points you can take home to the bank. What is this exile, both Assyrian and Babylonian? What do they teach us? Here's number one. They are meant to warn us against desiring that which God warns against. Let the Assyrian and Babylonian exile warn you against desiring that which God warns against. You say, what do I mean? What did they want? What did they want? A king. They wanted a human king. God warned them against it, and they went for it anyways. Only pain and suffering followed. And so it will be any time we pursue that which God forbids. And did it start out that way? No. It started out great, didn't it? Saul was amazing. He was an imposing king. He was, he was beautiful to look at. He was wonderful. Did it stay that way? Not at all. Not at all. So it is with all sin. Do you know anybody like that who desires that which God warns against? Say that was my next question. Are you the one like that? You desire that which God warns against. Is that you right now? Have you been warned or counseled to turn from a specific course of action? And beloved, learn the lesson from Israel. Save yourself from untold sorrows and suffering that you cannot even begin to imagine right now. And hear this with all of your heart. When God forbids something, stay away from it, KBC. It is for your good. Stay away. If you desire a joyful, happy life at all, don't engage in what God forbids. Sin never, never presents itself with all of its painful consequences. Never. It always shows you pleasure only. And then it delivers pain. And it delivers more than you could have ever imagined. That's the first takeaway. Second point worth considering today, this is going to be applicable perhaps more than it would have been even nine months ago, is concerning this divided kingdom. It's worth meditating, beloved. Divided kingdoms and God's economy result when people consider political alliances more fundamental to their identity than their theological identity. In God's set up, when political alliances or beliefs become more fundamental than our theological identity, division will ensue. KBC, I urge you, be cautious about letting your heart get 
overly knit to political parties or to ideas to the degree that it overshadows your identity in Christ and your commonality with others in Christ. Be very careful against that. Whatever party you think is correct, whatever cause of justice that you feel we should be pursuing and fighting for, be cautious about letting that dislodge your fundamental identity as the body and bride of Christ. Satanic forces are very capable of using current events and world news to sow discord in the body of Christ. There is no such thing as neutral, cons- uh, uh, neutral news. <laughs> Just say it like that. There is no such thing as neutral news. All of it is aiming to shift our focus from essential things to other things. So here's my counsel. Watch the news less and read your Bibles more. Watch the news less and read your Bibles more. And pray more. And if you do this, I can assure you, you will be more helpful in your responses to those around you. Now you say, are you proposing we bury our heads in the sand? Nope, not at all. I'm proposing you bury your heads in your Bibles, which is far more constructive than the sand. See, Daniel's going to remind us of this. Daniel had a better grasp of his Bible than he did of changing political powers. In Daniel 9, powers are changing again. Babylon, Persia, and where's Daniel's head at? The book of Jeremiah. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and that leads him to pray. Bury your heads in your Bibles. Beware of making political alliances and perspectives more fundamental to your identity than your theological identity as the bride of Christ. It's easy to do. It's an easy slip to happen, and many times it'll happen before we recognize it. That's your second takeaway. Let's move into the overview of Daniel. This is still back before we get to the future. Here's an overview of Daniel, the chapters briefly. Daniel chapter 1, we saw the exile or the diaspora. Interesting word. Does that word sound familiar from anywhere else in the New Testament? Maybe like 1 Peter, where we are called the diaspora and exiles. That's what was used of the Babylonian exiles and the Assyrian exiles. We see the diaspora as Daniel and his friends are carried off to Babylon in the first deportation. Daniel 2, we see their graduation. Yay, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they graduate from the University of Babylon, and they have their first test with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. None of the other wise men can do it. Daniel gets it revealed to him in a dream. Daniel chapter 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar's image of the fiery, uh, his image of worship, and then the fiery furnace as they are thrown into it. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind under the judgment of God for how many periods of time? Seven. Daniel 5, we see the fall of Babylon and the handwriting on the wall, and now there's a change of powers. Babylon falls, 
Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, takes control under Darius. That's Daniel 5. Daniel 6, now Daniel is in the Persian Empire. He's an older man now. He's not a young, young man anymore like he was in Daniel 1. A whole lifetime has passed, and now he is in the Persian Empire in the famous episode of Daniel and the Lion's Den. Daniel chapter 7 and 8, this is where it gets confusing because so far you're reading and it's chronological and it's linear, but come to chapter 7, he goes back, and we get kind of confused. We're like, wait, where, where is Daniel now? He's actually back after chapter 4, but before chapter 5. So Daniel chapter 7 and 8 goes back in time, back to Babylon, and then Daniel 9 through 11 goes forward to Persia again during Persian rule. And then Daniel 12 ends with Daniel in Persia, but he lifts our gaze far to the future, far to the future, both his and ours. It's a fascinating ending. We'll check it out. That is the overview of Daniel. That's number one. Back. Number two. Two, to the future, back two. Now we're going to zoom in a little bit to chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7, 28. 2, 4 to 7, 28. This is two, and you'll see why, because there are two visions, one in chapter 2 and ours in chapter 7 today, that form bookends to this section. You say, what am I talking about? We're setting the context for Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 2, 4 to 7, 28, if you recall, is written entirely in Aramaic. Not Hebrew. Daniel chapter 1, Hebrew. Daniel chapter 8, Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2, Aramaic. Why? That's an important shift. The whole section is in Aramaic. Why is that? If you recall, Aramaic was the international trade language of its day, much like English is today. Aramaic was so prominent for so long that guess who spoke it? Jesus, your Lord. He did not speak in Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. It was the international trade language for a very long time. And God does this language shift in chapter 2 through 7, to make this portion of Daniel more accessible because God has a purpose and a message for all peoples, not just the Jews in these sections. God is telling all peoples who is superior. Just like in Egypt, all nations would know Yahweh dominated Egypt. And here in Daniel 7, 2 through 7, all nations will know Yahweh dominates Babylon, Persia, and every future kingdom ever to come. Amen. That's why it's in Aramaic. I have a longer section I'm going to skip here for time's sake. <laughs> but I'm going to summarize it and say, the fact that this is in Aramaic shows us, again, that the Gentiles are not an afterthought in the plan of God. There is not a mystery age of the Gentiles between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. This is built into the prophets, God's plan for the Gentiles since the beginning, since Abraham all the way on to the present. That is not the mystery that Paul refers to. We'll talk more about that when we get to the 70th week of Daniel, but in Daniel chapter 9. This is God's message to the Gentiles, and so they get a picture of it too. And what we see here is this is a highly structured and tight-knit literary unit known as a chiastic structure. 
It's a very symmetrical form of writing. Uh, I told you before, if you picture an arrowhead, right? An arrowhead. It's symmetrical on both ends and parallel. If you were to diagram this section out, it would make almost a perfect arrowhead. It's one of the best structures in all of Scripture that is like this. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you the parallels. Chapter 2 is parallel with chapter 7. Chapter 2, we have a dream. Chapter 7, we have a dream. Chapter 2, we see four empires. Chapter 7, we see four empires. Then we have chapter 3 and 6, also paralleled with divine deliverances. Chapter 3 is the fiery furnace deliverance. Chapter 6, Daniel's delivered from the lion's den. The inner portion of the chiasm, chapter 4 and 5, has the judgment of God and the humiliation of pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. It is a perfect perfectly symmetrical unit, and all of it in Aramaic. And so we have our two parallel visions back to the future. And so it's a fitting conclusion that as we round out this section, chapter 2 started us in Babylon, chapter 7 will end us, where? In Babylon, with a message and a glimpse of a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Number three, the future. The future. Now we're coming, finally caught up to the passage today and the remainder of Daniel. Before I can get into this, you have to know and I have to tell you, this section is different than the sections that come before and how you read it. Daniel 7 begins what's known as the apocalyptic section of the book of Daniel. This is a book that contains apocalyptic literature in it. Now, who was here for the book of Revelation? Okay, a lot of you. Who is not here for the book of Revelation? A few of you were not here for the book of Revelation. So, uh, a little brief overview of apocalyptic literature. Uh, I'll give you more in the weeks to come, but it is highly symbolic by definition. Uh, it is its own genre it has a, it's characteristic, it's got visions and dreams and heavenly mediators, uh, all kinds of different things of this nature. It's generally exaggerated and, and very pictorial in how it describes things. It's almost as if we had a political cartoon. You guys see political cartoons? Uh, you might see, for instance, a, a donkey and an elephant. Maybe they're hugging. Or, or you guys laugh, huh? or, or maybe you'll see a donkey and an elephant wearing boxing gloves. Or, or maybe you'll see them doing something else, or you'll see exaggerated features on these animals. They're all making a point, aren't they? And you guys laugh because you know what I'm talking about. The donkey and elephant stand for what? Political parties. Democrats portrayed as a donkey. Republicans portrayed as a elephant. You guys are already getting your first tutorial in interpreting apocalyptic literature. These were symbols that were common to them. They would have recognized what these things mean. Now today, if you get somebody perhaps from Asia, born overseas, maybe Korea, China, Japan, Indonesia, India, and you show them a political cartoon, what are they going to think? You're going to think, oh, it's a donkey and an elephant. I don't know. Maybe they're not familiar with our system. You see, the symbols would mean nothing to them. Here we are a millennia later, 
several millennia later, and some of the symbols get lost to us. It's not as clear to us, but it meant something to them. And so this is highly symbolic, very visual into how it portrays its message. And it's meant to leave, boom, pack a punch. How would you not forget? How could you forget these beasts? A leopard with wings and four heads? You see, this leaves an impact. This leaves an impact. And it's designed to. So that's a a brief reminder. This is apocalyptic literature, much as Revelation was. And you'll see all these features, and we'll point them out as they come up. Apocalyptic literature also overlaps with prophetic literature, a little bit different degree of emphasis. Prophetic literature, like most of your prophets, what they're doing is they're aiming to call an unfaithful people to covenant faithfulness, forthtelling. And then they foretell coming judgment if they don't. So that's your classic prophetic literature, calling unfaithful people to obedience. Apocalyptic literature has a little bit of that, but it's got a degree of emphasis, and it's aiming to call faithful people to persevere through crisis and suffering. It's aiming to call faithful people to persevere amidst suffering and hardship. And you'll see this play out also. So we have our vision today, Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 through 14. We have this vision of the four winds of heaven stirring up the waters, and out of these waters come four beasts. Thank you. I love children in here with these messages. Yes, four beasts. The first one is a lion with the wings of an eagle. The second one is this bear, and he's got one side raised up over the other, and how many ribs does he have in his mouth? Three, and he's just chomping away on these ribs and stamping everything. It's just a very vivid picture. And then the next one is a leopard. How many heads does he have? Four. How many wings does he have? Four. And then the fourth beast, what is the fourth beast? It's this ten-horned vicious, terrifying, iron-teethed beasts that Daniel can't even describe. He doesn't, he doesn't even have a descriptor for it. He's grasping for words. What do these beasts mean? What do they represent? We're going to look more at that next week because Daniel gets told exactly what they mean and what they represent. But for now... Let's wrap up our time. Remember our vision from chapter 2. You remember that? Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the parallel. Remember our vision from chapter 2, and we have Nebuchadnezzar, an unbelieving man, with a vision of four kingdoms. And what do they look like? They're in the form of a man, of an image, of precious and strong metals, gold and silver and bronze and iron. It's a vision of a man from an unbeliever as he sees these world kingdoms. And now, Daniel spent most of his life interpreting other people's dreams. And now Daniel has dreams. (laughs) And Daniel's dreams are the type of dreams you don't want to have. It says he woke up from these dreams anxious, terrified, upset. Have you ever woken up from a dream like that? These disturbed him to the core. 
We'll talk about what disturbed him to the core, and it should disturb us to the core. But Daniel, the man of God, has a vision now, and he sees these same kingdoms, and what are they portrayed as? Beasts. See, an unbelieving man sees the world's kingdoms, and he sees a a man with, with gold and silver and an image, but a man of God sees the same kingdoms, and he sees terrifying, dreadful, violent, savage beasts. The message is clear. What men see as symbols of strength and power and beauty that reflect their own might, God sees as savage and beastly. By contrast, Daniel sees thrones, and he sees the Ancient of Days, and one like the Son of Man, the true man, is presented with glory, dominion, and a kingdom that will never pass away. Now, fast forward your mind to Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene. Do you know what Jesus' favorite title for himself was? Son of Man. Son of Man. Jesus most often referred to himself not as Messiah, although he claimed to be that, not primarily as son of God, although he claimed to be that, but he most often referred to himself as son of man. And that comes directly, he is pulling directly from Daniel chapter 7. Beloved, our world is in disarray. It really is. Coronavirus, our elections, everything seems different. America, and hear me say this with love and kindness, but truth, America, for all of its greatness, is just another worldly kingdom. It is a beast. It is a beast, and it acts like one. It devours its own children, literally. It enslaves people within its own borders and denies them humanity, historically. And much, much more. America's restored glory is not the hope of the church. It is the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds with glory, our King. That's our King. Will always be our King forever and ever, and it must be our fundamental hope. And his kingdom is unconquerable, and it is to all nations that will bow. Does not Daniel 7 read much like Revelation 5, or Revelation 7, or Revelation 11? All tribes and tongues and peoples and nations would worship the Lamb. So what are some takeaways here? Beloved, number one, God delivers from, but he also delivers to. God delivers from, but he also delivers to. Just as Jehoiakim was handed over to Babylon. If God delivers a nation to something, there is a purpose. 
And beloved, God has a purpose for what we are undergoing. And his purpose, what, we, what he is doing specifically, it will take a lifetime to see. But individually, he wants you to not compromise. He wants you to remain faithful, obedient, and perseverant. We also find in Daniel 7 that it's actually a, a picture. Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, all of these parts that came before are a, are a small picture of what Daniel 7 paints, the larger movements of history. You say, what do you mean? If you recall Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, it all but appears that God's people have lost, that you might be devoured by a lion or thrown into a fiery furnace, but suddenly at the last hour, the last minute, they are supernaturally and unexpectedly delivered. That is a picture of the larger movement, and what we're going to see next week is a little horn is given power, and he is wearing out the saints. They're suffering, untold torment. And at the last hour, they're redeemed. That's the picture of Daniel. That's the hope we cling to. Take this home, KBC. You will not face the lions because you have a lion, the lion of Judah, pleading your case, fighting for you. You will not face the flames of judgment in Christ. You will be delivered from every single one. There will not be a stench of smoke on your garments. That's the hope Daniel holds out for all who follow the Son of Man. And we need this hope, KBC. It's offered to you. We need to anchor it deep in our hearts by embracing the gospel. To him, all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture, this vision of history. Worldly empires can be beastly and savage, but your kingdom will reign forever and ever. May we bank our hope on this. May we repent from sin and cling to the forgiveness available and the lordship of Jesus Christ, the true Son of Man. In his name we pray. Amen.